Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. I'm back with another must-listen author interview. I'm so excited about this. Today I am joined by Matt Bell, who is the author of the upcoming Appleseed, which goes on sale July 13th from the Custom House imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. Matt is the author of the novel Scrapper and In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods, as well as the short story collection A Tree or a Person or a Wall, a nonfiction book about the classic video game Baldur's Gate 2, which is titled Baldur's Gate 2, and several other titles. Uh, his writings appeared in the New York Times, Tin House, Conjunctions, Fairy Tale Review, American Short Fiction, and many other publications. A native of Michigan, he teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> So I am so excited to delve into Appleseed. There's a lot to chew on. I'm sorry for that pun. I might edit that <laughs> out. We will see. <laughs> um, which is this epic work of speculative fiction that does call to mind Neil Stevenson and Jeff Vandermeer, but it is unmistakably Matt Bell. So a lot to talk about. Just to start things off, Matt, could you introduce listeners to Appleseed? Absolutely. Um, Appleseeds, uh, uh, as you said, an epic speculative environmental novel uh, it's told across three storylines in a thousand years or so, um, begins in the late 18th century with a mythological retelling of Johnny Appleseed, uh, continues 300 years later in our near future with a story of a resistance movement during climate change caused uh, political collapse and a plot to geoengineer the atmosphere, and then it leaves 700 years in the future again for uh, finds a bioengineered creature living alone atop a glacial uh, North America. It's about manifest destiny and climate change and how people in the future might try to solve the environmental and cultural problems that we've made. So it's sort of it's a it's a myth, it's a tech thriller, it's a big adventure story set across our our past and present and future. Thank you. Yeah, it's there are some weighty topics that you confront in this book, but it is at the same time just it, not just it's a very entertaining, just enveloping read. And I yeah, I, I adored it. And it's just a wholly unique reading experience. Um, so when it comes, you mentioned, you know, it's speculative fiction. And when I think about the speculative fiction genre, the ideas explored are often ambitious and awe-inspiring, you know, big ideas. But we could argue about what fantastical means, but sure. when I think of speculative fiction, I don't really think about the fantastical as part of those stories. Appleseed, however, combines myth and fantasy with futurism to reckon with many of these very pressing issues that we're facing today, you know, impending environmental collapse, the conflict between corporate greed and the greater good, individualism and humanity's place in the life cycle of the planet. So 
what drew you towards using myth to confront these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, since people are listening, won't have read the book, I'd say like one of the, the conceits of the book or the starting material of it was this idea uh, of writing Johnny Appleseed as if he was a Greek fawn. So I have this half human, half animal Johnny Appleseed, as you know. Um, and then there's also a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice sort of thread through the book and, um, and three witches that sort of appear in different forms as sort of fates and furies. Um, so some of the reason for this is just like love of that material, right? Like I, I love folklore, I love myth. Uh, my brain sort of naturally moves toward that to some extent. Um, I think it's also that I think a lot of myths and folktales are, are inexhaustible in a certain way. It's why you can retell them over and over. There's a durability to that material that makes them really interesting to sort of recast. And then I, I'm not sure, I mean, I think I started from like, this is fun, but I think the, the like smart reason it's there now is, uh, you know, I was trying to make this, I was thinking about how to write about climate change that wasn't about one moment in time, which is the reason it's this long thousand year story, but adding myth to that or having a mythological background to it connects it even farther back. So the story of like how we got to climate change and where we might go from it connects back to like the Greek myths in the beginning of Western civilization. You get to tell this like infinite story as opposed to like what happened in one September in Connecticut or something, right? You know, like I sort of wanted to have that bigger time span to play with and the myth allows for that in certain ways. Yeah, I, I love I love the idea of an infinite story, which is definitely something you play with in the book. I don't <laughs> want to give anything away, but in those passages are fantastic. I, you know, reading them, I first read, I'm like, okay, this is incredible. Second read, I still just didn't understand how you pulled it off, and you did. It's just it's incredible. So, um, so could you walk listeners through how you plot a novel like Appleseed? Because there, are, as you mentioned, there are three main storylines. There are a lot of narrative threads. Um, did you know going in that you, you know, what you wanted to include, how you wanted to jump through time with this book? I don't, not at the very beginning, right? I think there was definitely, um, uh, but pretty quickly it became that it wasn't just going to be set in the past, that I wanted to tell this longer story. So I started sort of seeing what that could be. I think there was one version of it at some point where it was like continuous thousand years, like something, you know, just kind of really messy. Like um, uh, there was a version where we were moving through the threads like really fast, like sort of like mid scene um, in a different way that was messy. So you're trying different things out. Some of it's just like what works, what's possible. I think, uh, I think I knew more about different threads at different times. Uh, John's thread, the thread that takes place in the near future. I sort of knew the scenario but I didn't know what happened there exactly. Like I didn't know the story. I'm um, really until I was like laid in like a second draft. I was like, oh, I, I see. It's like a like a heist. Uh, you know, it's just kind of a heist narrative. And these, you know, him gathering the rest of the resistance group and like trying to stop this plot was just not apparent to me exactly how that worked plot wise. So there was a lot of like John wandering around at some point. And I was like, this could be better. <laughs> but uh, but then you you know eventually you organize all the material and you you find the best way to sort of tell this story. So it, it's a process of discovery, every book. Excellent. Um, so in speaking of this story, so when you spend so much time with these characters, with these storylines, how do you walk that tightrope of staying true to your original vision or you know the the early on vision of the story while being you know aware of world events as they occur and movements that are occurring in the midst of your writing yeah i think you know i uh i started the book in october of 2016 so i you know sort of been writing it through the last you know four four and a half years as we've uh, gone through so much as a country together and as a world 
and and so things are constantly changing but i i feel like some of that's just getting folded in the part i mean this is clearly not an autobiographical novel but the ways in which it is is like the person you were in the years you were writing it gets folded in probably in small ways and big ways but i think i knew i was writing it i mean it's not like climate change is a new problem but even as i was writing the book you could feel the sort of public interest public awareness going up you know there uh, maybe like two or three years ago there was the that one particular big report, uh, climate report came out, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but like, it seemed like got tons of attention and like people's sort of anxiety about climate change went up or their, or their daily anxiety about it. Um, and you could feel that you were, you were writing into that. Um, to give a really specific example of something that changed when I was editing the book, like right at the end stages, again, not to give anything away, but there's a sort of protest uh, uprising movement at one point in the book and I was doing edits on the book as the Black Lives Matters uh, protests were kind of at their height last year. And it changed the language I used in some of that, that those parts of the book. I could feel that I'd inherited some ways of talking about protest that was serving sort of power as opposed to the protesters. And, and I, I'm on the side of the protesters in my book and in life. And, and I shifted the language to better fit the actual way I felt about the world, I think, that I hadn't, I might not have done that if the, the Black Lives Matter protest hadn't happened while I was writing the book. I think that's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, so that's, it's funny, it kind of bridges into my next question, which is, you've not shied away from taking on social issues in your past books either. I think that's uh, consistent. Uh, they make a consistent appearance in your books. So you know, as we mentioned, this is your third novel. So all three novels do approach social issues. So I'm curious over the course of three novels, how your ideas and methods have changed regarding what you want your novels to do. Is there like in your mind, something that a novel is supposed to accomplish, whether it's just entertainment for the reader or for a larger societal cause? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I do feel like that's changed. I think my last novel, Scrapper, is set in, uh, in like contemporary Detroit in the sort of illegal metal scrapping industry and um, and was kind of odd detective novel. And I, I feel like that novel was is a really good like problem novel. It's like, here's a, a problem I see in the world. Here's the thing I'm angry about in the world. I think it's, you know, and, and I'm writing into that, but not a solutions novel. You don't get to the end of that book and be like, well, I've been, I've been inspired to think of solutions to this. I, I think it doesn't do that work. And as I was, you know, you're not going to read Appleseed and see like the solution to climate change, but you'll see people trying to think about those solutions and trying to enact positive change in the world. And I think wanting to write a book that didn't just like, wasn't just the apocalypse. It wasn't the despair about climate change. You know, there's probably some of that in there too, but, but also like, what will it look like when we have to make these decisions? How will we try to fix the things that we have to fix, you know, and, and trying to show people doing that. I don't think the solutions in Appleseed will probably be, they're not the solutions I'd want maybe, but they're, but the idea of thinking through those is sort of presented by the book in a way that, um, that I probably wouldn't have done five years ago. It would have been more just the doom and gloom and less of the like, wonder and the reason to like make things better or how we might hope for that. Uh, maybe more of a utopian impulse as a writer, even if it is by no means like a utopia in the book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that middle storyline. Could you talk a little bit more about it, ex exactly what's happening? I mean, it hits so close to home. It is relatively near future. As you mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, there's, we, the earth has already seen this environmental collapse and there's 
one kind of mega corporation listeners you can think of whatever modern day corporation you like that is the equivalent but could you could you walk readers through that storyline a little bit more because it is fascinating yeah absolutely the the storyline follows a, a character named john who's uh, a scientist and worked for a company called earth trust that he helped found that is sort of a uh, kind of Monsanto-esque if taken to like the global domination and uh, uh, more maybe. Um, but I think uh, the future is about maybe like 50 or 70 years in the future from our time. So later climate change, things are sort of worse off. There's, it's, uh, it's sort of built around uh, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and this sort of idea of like the way in which governments or corporations use um, uh, political or natural disasters in order to, to make money or take power. Um, and, and one of the things that I was thinking about, I mean, the, the woman who runs Earth Trust in the book, her name is Yuri Mirov, and she, I think she's the antagonist, but not a villain, right? I mean, that was really important to me that she is trying to use that same kind of move, the sort of disaster capitalism or shock doctrine, in order to make it possible for someone to act unilaterally on climate change. So we end up in sort of this place where uh, Earth Trust ends up having uh, kind of dominion over about half of the country and is uh, making choices about what we do as a culture, not de democratic, but for, in her mind, the greater good. And it is an interesting scenario to try to imagine these things that mostly I think are bad in our world and like, what if someone tried to use them benevolently? Again, probably not the solution I would want, but an interesting solution to think about and to, to play out. Yeah, I love that. And John, you know, who is this brilliant scientist who finds himself kind of swept away by, you know, the vigor and the brilliance of Yuri. It's really, and he kind of has the same internal dialogue that the reader has, where it's like, they're not villains necessarily. The ideas proposed right. facing what they're facing, would you give up everything? and allow this mega corporation to save the planet. And it's, it's really interesting. And I love, of course, the, the tech involved, this, you know, the futuristic tech involved. So I love if you could talk about how you construct that system, because it's, it's all believable. Again, like you said, it's like 50 years in the future, but a lot has happened. So, I mean, were there other works of speculative fiction that you called upon or, you know, futurism books? Like, how do you go about that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely um, there was a time where I was sort of joking, like the really fast elevator pitch for this book was that it was like an episode of Westworld written by Wendell Berry and Annie Dillard. Right. <laughs> I think there's sort of the combination of sort of like future stuff I like and then also um, sort of environmental writers. Uh, the first thing I thought about a lot writing this book was Ursula Le Guin. I do this project where I try to read like all of somebody's work in a year. who has like a lot of, you know, a kind of major American writer usually. And while I was writing Appleseed, I read like 25 of Le Guin's books one year and, and just like really deep, deep in, in that and showed me so much of how to do these kind of novels driven by ideas where people are trying to like think their solutions together. And one of the things Le Guin said in a, an essay is that every utopia contains a dystopia and every dystopia contains a utopia. You know, you sort of can see the reverse as you're building it. And I think that I thought about that a lot, like thinking about as you're taking something to an extreme, you see the opposite side of it too. And so like in some ways, I feel like a lot of things Yuri tries to build are things that I want. Like she wants, she talks about meaningful work for people. There's these volunteer agricultural communities that people give up their citizenship and become 
of indentured to you in a certain way. But but the idea behind them in some ways is that this idea of like meaningful work as opposed to the kind of jobs many of us have that we don't feel meaningful about. And, you know, so it's often like finding a sort of warped version of a positive thing, right? And sort of like letting the the way in which it's distorted suggests to the reader also like maybe a more positive solution or a way of thinking of more positive solutions. And I also think a lot of the stuff you suggest are like based on real technologies or things that we are going to do. When Andrew Yang ran for president, he had geoengineering the stratosphere as part of his climate platform. Um, like people are going to propose these ideas in our lifetimes, <laughs> you know, and, and we'll find out. So some of it is just like taking seriously the things that are already being done in our lives. Yeah, thank you for that. And that, and that's really interesting that you read so much in the midst of writing this, because I, one thing I guess I haven't mentioned is the prose is beautiful in this book. Mm -hmm. And it is, I think, unique to you. It's, it, it is a Matt Bell book. So, I mean, how, how do you develop that? And I, you obviously don't have any issues worrying about other books impacting your writing or your writing style. You feel like you're kind of in a place where that is, you have that set. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's always changing, I'm sure. But I I, uh, I think, I know people sometimes worry about being influenced, but I, I think I actually like crave influence. I want to be in conversation with other people. I think most of the writers I know who seem the most original are just influenced by so many people that you can't tease it all out, you know, like um, when uh, when you're influenced by one person, it's, it's, a, it's something's really obvious or it's fan fiction or something, right? It's like, I'm really clearly doing what they're doing the best I can. And I love that impulse too. Um, I always joke that my first published stories were basically Dennis Johnson fan fiction because they were, they were like <laughs> Dennis Johnson stories that weren't as good. Um, and then over time, you just like everything you love is sort of coming in together. Uh, one of the reasons this book has so many parts, the sort of the mythic, the speculative, the future, the historical um, is because I'm trying to write with like everything that I like as a, you know, and I think sometimes that, that is, you don't have to be worried about influence if you're just letting in the things you, you love in that way. Um, I also think you can't really write speculative fiction without being in conversation with other writers. There's not a version of like science fiction where you're like, I'll ignore all the other ideas anyone's ever had and write my, it's maybe, but I feel like that's even not what's best about science fiction. Some of what's best about it is the way that um, this is in conversation with like a Jeff Vandermeer or something, or it is in conversation with McGuinn, or it is in conversation with um, uh, certainly Octavia Butler and, and other people like that. You know, I think, um, I don't know, that feels good. I would like to, have it. it's okay if it's reminiscent in some way like that feels fine yeah uh, excellent listeners you've probably gathered a large almost I mean, nature is at the core of this book the value of nature our you know our future on this planet humanity's relationship with nature so and i think the book does a great job of you know driving home the value of nature without you know over romanticizing it as if it's you know here for us but that's really kind of the conversation that many of these characters are having. I think of Chapman and his brother Nathaniel, uh, you know, the early storyline when they're, you know, they're, they're forging West in Ohio and, and Nathaniel's making these grand proclamations about, you know, bringing order and humanity to nature. So could you talk about your own relationship with the natural world and how you impart the value of it without it? Or can you impart the value of it without it being, you know, this is great, independent of the value it gives you as a human, you know, is that that kind of give and take? Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I grew up uh, 
in rural Michigan and I grew up hiking and backpacking and kayaking. We spent a lot of time outside and, you know, always uh, loved the natural world. Um, so as an adult or, you know, camping and backpacking, I'm a trail runner. Uh, my wife is a, a birder and photographer, you know, like we spend a lot of time caring about these things. And I think, but I do think my relationship to, to them has changed that, that idea of like it being, as you said, like nature being for us is something that I, uh, I don't, it's hard not to feel sometimes because you're sort of conditioned to, but I don't want to, I don't want to consume nature. Right. Um, one of the things that was an inspiring sort of idea of the book was as I started researching like the, like John, uh, Chapman and Nathaniel's era sort of realized that people in the era didn't have a conception of like nature, something that was exhaustible. Like the, like, uh, like Thomas Jefferson famously didn't believe in extinction, right? He, he was like searching for mastodons because he didn't believe he, they had fossils, but he didn't believe it must be somewhere. Like nothing that creation had created could possibly leave the world. And so like you didn't, the idea of uh, exhausting natural resources or, or being like you could run out of things, you could ruin the land or you could run out of animals or I don't know. I think people our age were in some ways like the early generations of, of humanity that grew up with the idea of like running out of whales or like saving the whale. You know what I mean? Like the idea that you could exhaust the oceans or exhaust the land is actually pretty new. And it's interesting to, at least in a broad cultural way. And I thought that was really interesting to sort of try to tease through time as well. Like Nathaniel and Chapman are incapable of our era's environmentalism as they clear the land and settle and plant and, 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 turn the earth productive they're just not able to have the relationship we have with it but Chapman being this half human half animal character allows him to sort of sense the other choice that he could make if he had lived a different life there's this other person he could be that might not really be a person and uh, and I thought that was an interesting tension I really enjoyed sort of trying to inhabit that try to really imagine Chapman having a, a the possibility of a pure relationship with nature than I have you know even as much as I sort of love it yeah, I think that's great. And yeah, Chapman as, you know, this fawn, which is a really fascinating literary turn. I, I loved it. I, he does, it does really open up the conversation for him, you know, relatively, like you said, his brother Nathaniel, that's just, it's not something he could conceptualize at that time right. uh, in place. So thank you for that. So I do just want to talk a little bit about video games, because I know you're, you're yeah, big into video <laughs> games. Uh, as we mentioned, you, you wrote a book about Baldur's Gate 2. So could you talk about video games and how you feel they impact your, your own fiction writing or your own work as a writer? Yeah, I, uh, I've been really thankful for them this year as a way of uh, like traveling and being other places. It's been, it's been important just in that way. Um, but yeah, I think they've I've always been part of my life. My dad was a computer programmer, so we grew up with computers in the house when I was really young. So I've always been in, in that. I, uh, I think they're another imaginative space. They're another kind of story. They're another way of sort of being in a place and inhabiting it. When I was, uh, I was finishing Appleseed and working kind of long hours editing the book, I was, uh, I unwind at night replaying the Mass Effect games, which I really love those stories and love those spaces. And I remember thinking about the like kind of science fiction space opera, like architecture that's in those kind of games and the way like something's allowed to be not so much realistic as like awe-inspiring right like and I thought about that a lot when I was like writing the figuring out like the tower that Yuri uses that's sort of her home base slash geoengineering platform um trying to make that like work on like a blueprint it's not really work in my head sort of but making it work is like uh, a piece of awe for the reader or a thing that's interesting for reader or a space that's interesting to navigate the way and they're doing sort of the heist 
that you might be interesting to navigate in a, a video or something. I think that that is sort of useful and sort of remembering that sometimes something can be there because it's cool. It doesn't have to be there because it's like, right? <laughs> this should be the most like logical way for a corporation to build something. Like, no, it's just the coolest way for a corporation to build something. It's, you know, yeah, I think that, I feel that like science fiction architecture in general, like that balance between what's cool and what's practical. And we need both kinds of writers, but I like, the cool side you know <laughs> i do too and you know it, as a reader i sometimes struggle visualizing architecture when it's written out right. and, and this yes. it, it felt so real and, and, well real and that i could visualize that i was there just by the way that yeah you you rendered it so thank you video games and that might be thank that you. might be a video game thing too right like it's about the way the mind moves through a space that sort of like seeing you know that navigability of it as opposed to like would this be really how you'd lay out this floor of an office building or something, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so this is a library podcast listened to by librarians. So I figured we'd end the episode with a little reader's advisory. Um, you had hinted that you, obviously you're a huge reader, huge reader, like enviable. It, 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 it's something. So, you, and you have on your website, which uh, I'll link to in the show notes, dear listeners, uh, you have a reading log on your website. So are there any books you've read recently that you feel are especially important, whether for added perspective on modern life or simply for mm. just good old fashioned reads? Yeah, I'll, you know, may I suggest just like a nonfiction book and then we'll just talk fiction, but uh, Elizabeth Colbert's new book Under White Sky just came out. Um, I love Elizabeth Colbert's work. Another person whose other work was influential on this. Um, it was really interesting to read it because she even that title under a white sky is the same central metaphor that the white sky in Appleseed is about in the future. It's an effect of geoengineering. And it was really interesting to watch, uh, you know, a journalist you admire so much, like thinking about some similar kinds of things that, that, that she's clearly writing in the same time. Um, and it was really great to sort of see that. So I feel like be lucky to be a companion piece to her book. And then just some novels I've loved recently. Uh, a book just came out by a Swedish writer named Karen Tidbeck called The Memory Theater that I really love, that uh, a really interesting fairy tale kind of book. Uh, Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun, I, I really loved, is sort of the, the different kind of fantasy novel, it's fantastic. Stephen Graham Jones's The Only Good Indians was one of my favorite novels of last year, I just think incredible. He, I've loved his work forever, and I think that by far my favorite book of his. And then I'll just say uh, Amy Bender's uh, new book, uh, The Butterfly Lampshade, is really brilliant. And I think um, she's one of my favorite writers when I first started writing. And I think this is my favorite novel of hers. And I also think she does something new with like, like fabulism in it and in, in like a real, more realistic setting that I've never seen anybody do, including her. And I think anybody who likes that sort of uh, intrusive sort of fantasy in the real world, there's nothing quite like it. I feel like it's, uh, it's worth checking out. Excellent. Well, that is all of my questions, Matt. I want to thank you again for an excellent conversation uh, I'm so excited for readers to find this book, to lose themselves in this book, to maybe learn something, to feel something. You'll, you'll have all the feels. And I, it's funny you mentioned Stephen Graham Jones, because I know he gave a great blurb for this book. The reason you've never read a book like Appleseed is that there's never been a book like Appleseed. The scary thing, though, is this is a world you might recognize, this premise, this content, this form, this language. Only Matt Bell could have given us this novel couldn't say it better myself. So <laughs> I, I'm, again, so excited. Uh, librarians, if you're listening, the eGalley is available now on Edelweiss and NetGalley. Uh, the book goes on sale July 13th from Custom House, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. Matt, again, thank you so much for 
joining me today and talking about this spectacular book. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And uh, yeah, thanks, librarians. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.